Dang it, man. What am I doing? What am I doing? Those are words I've become way too familiar with. Those are words that I've uttered with gritted teeth, looking in the mirror, nails digging into my palms as I try to make the most unbreakable fists out of the most unbearable frustration. This anger that's fueled by regret immediately turns into a sort of surrendered posture. My clenched fists lose their form and gradually turn into upward-facing open palms. At this point, I have completely given up. Sick and tired of being sick and tired. And then it begins. The frustrated tears. Like, you know how in those movies, there's this one guy, usually a good guy turned bad, who is pointing a gun at in someone's face with rage, absolute rage, and usually seeking some type of re revenge or redemption. And as the other person, the person who has like the gun pointed at them, usually a long lost best friend or family member is talking to him. And he or she slowly tells the person um, with the gun to drop it or to give it to them. Uh, but the guy is clearly not budging and is gripping the gun like his life depended on it. As this confrontation unfolds and the conversation continues, the person inches toward the one with the gun, usually like usually sharing um, a sentimental memory or reminding them of who they truly are. And then his eyes start to well up with tears as he remembers or reminisces on the memory that the person is sharing. The, his jaw no longer clenched. His shoulders relaxed, yet, yet uh, still a bit apprehensive. His white knuckled hand around the gun begins to show signs of life. And his finger on the trigger eases up on the pressure. And then the person says something unbelievably simple, yet absolutely groundbreaking. Like something like, it's going to be okay. Or I love you. Or a combination of the two. And then their hand touches his hand, still on the gun, and then the guy lets it go. And then at this point in the movie or the show, this is where the full-fledged sobbing embrace follows. Um, and then with the dramatic music that, that end up, ends up making the entire theater sob. This is the exact feeling I explained a few moments ago um, looking in the mirror with unbelievable frustration out of regret um, that I have felt for the past six years of believing in a God that took into account my every shortcoming, past, present, and future, was destroyed on a cross and resurrected three, three days later to complete a redemptive rescue mission. Yet I continue to fall again and again into the sin that is pornography and masturbation. This is a position I have deliberately chosen to place myself in. Time and time again, after swearing to myself that I would never place myself in that same position again. But as it happens, while in this position of, of remorse after watching porn, and as the angry regret subsides and the shame is 
and the shame is ushered in, the questions begin to pour into my head. Questions like, why in the world am I still struggling with this? How could I possibly say that I love God when I, I've been choosing to blatantly disobey Him for so long, willingly? Am I really saved? And then the most piercing question of them all, how am I supposed to claim that I've been saved by a perfect creator, given a new life and a new heart with new desires, and implore others to acknowledge and embrace the same Savior when I still choose the same sin I claimed He saved me from? Is It is at this moment, at those moments that I resonate the most with the men of the Bible, like, like King David, referred to as the one after God's own heart. When his sins against uh, Bathsheba and Uriah are revealed and the weight of his sin is felt on his own shoulders. Or, or Peter, Jesus' right-hand man, when he, when he publicly denied Jesus three times. And then I also resonate with the believers in the crowd that were among those yelling, crucify him, and chose to release a murderer rather than the Messiah himself at the trial before the Roman emperor. That last question, though, still haunts me till this day. But please hear me out as I unpack the hope. Yeah, I still have a fraction of it left after fighting an uphill battle for almost six years. The hope in a victory I am absolutely certain will come, whether that's in five days or 50 years. A victory only an all-powerful God is capable of producing. A victory... I try to remind myself to walk in every day. Welcome to episode three, The Eight-Year-Old Addict. I was introduced to pornography when I was just eight years old. And to say the least, it destroyed me. But I didn't realize that until several years later because at that time, I thought I hit the mother load. It was new to me and, well, to put it simply, I didn't see anything wrong with it. I was introduced to this entire arena of adult life that was once hidden from me, and I ran with it. But in reality, it completely corrupted my view of several things, like, well, primarily the most obvious, women and sex. But. As I got older and after God brought me to saving faith, I realized it had polluted almost every aspect of my life, all the way from school and my education, to my friends, the music I listened to, my sense of humor and, well, just comedy in general, and even the cartoons I watched. You think I'm taking it too far and overthinking it? Well, I mean, here's some examples without going into too much detail. Um, so how in the world did it affect school for me? Well, when you dive into the depths of the restricted 18 and over dark abyss of the incognito tabs of the internet, you come across certain um, categories that pique your interests. I won't go into those in, into those in detail because 
I think they might serve as triggers for some people, so I'll just describe them as categories. Because if you've been tempted to become an avid watcher like myself, growing up, you know exactly what those are. It affected my school because I began to see my female teachers, my, my wonderful educators, as potential objects to coerce or entice, or hoping they did it to me. I began to expect something more to happen when I would be sent to detention after school or, or when I had to meet them in their office, and honestly, how evil is that? Not to mention the amount of daydreaming I did as a young kid was unreal. My classmates, who were probably thinking the same thing, definitely didn't help. So, so why or how could it affect my friends? My friends actually became the target of my jealousy and envy. I wouldn't trust them um, if they were in the same friend group as my girlfriends. And since I could 100% assume and assume correctly that they were watching porn on the regular as well, their intentions could not have been much better than mine. As far as music goes, um, I'll cover that in the next episode. The next episode will be entirely about how music has, an, has a humongous influence on everything that we are. So, um, let's see what's next. Um, but what about my sense of humor? How was my view on, cam- on, on comedy affected? Well, that part is actually you know, pretty simple. Um, you know those phrases that cause people to think or say uh, most of the time at the most inappropriate times? The phrase, that's what she said? Coined by one of the most popular TV shows, a TV show I've, I kind of get very proud about uh, for not having watched a single episode. Um, but, yep, that's pornography. Porn did that. You can't listen to a simple, innocent sentence without any underlying intention, without internally thinking or sometimes even rem- like saying it out loud. That's what she said. And yeah, sure. It, I mean, it's funny. It may make light of a serious situation, and I'm I'm not saying I'm I've never laughed or said that myself, but that's exactly the point I'm trying to make. We've become so desensitized to the entire realm of this vile addiction and obsession that we're exposed to at a at super young ages, to the point where masturbation is considered an unspoken art of expression for young boys and a joke among grown men. I mean, think about it. We've made taking our kids when they turn 18 years old to the strip club like it's a freaking rite of passage into manhood. I'm tired of it. The moment I recognized that I lost my virginity because I wanted to finally try what I was watching on the screen on another person. I mean, I I had finally reached the age where I could. But at that point, my perception started to change. This is a slight tangent, but I wanted to mention it right, right now before I forgot about it and failed to mention it later. But I had made fun of many people for how sheltered they grew up and approached them with the attitude of like, dang, wow, that's sad. You missed out on so much as a child. How have you not watched so-and-so movie or listened to so-and-so's music? 
I still meet people today who are in their late 20s and early 30s um, that haven't seen or heard of, of certain shows or movies. And my initial reaction is shock, but it, it's, immediate, it's immediately followed by envy. Why envy? Because I have had many nights, many nights where I've cried myself to sleep, crying out to God, wishing I had never been exposed to so many things growing up because I'm constantly reminded of my mistakes. I actually wish I was one of those sheltered children, but no perfect childhood, no perfect parental guidance, and no perfect obedience of any sort on my part could have saved me from the business I had found out I was contributing to. That business was sex trafficking. Sex trafficking? What, Chris? I thought this episode was about pornography. Yep, exactly. When I became aware of how much the adult entertainment world was not just all made up of employees who liked having sex on camera for billions to watch every year, I myself was super shocked. I was made aware of the true reality that is the pornography, pornography industry. It's a business of coercion, threat, manipulation, grooming of minors, drug abuse, abduction, prostitution, and the list goes on. In fact, a non-religious, non-partisan campaign called the Trafficking Hub states this in their petition. Uh, the petition just recently hit 2 million signatures. Their petition says this, um, Pornhub, the world's largest and most popular porn site, has been repeatedly caught, repeatedly caught enabling, hosting, and profiting from videos of child rape, sex trafficking, and other forms of non-consensual content exploiting women and minors. A 15-year-old girl who had been missing for a year was finally found after her mother was tipped off that her daughter was being featured in videos on the site. 58 such videos of her rape and sexual abuse were discovered on Pornhub. Pornhub has no reliable system in place to verify uh, that those in the videos it hosts are not trafficked children being raped on film in order to line the pockets of its executives. Recently, the Internet Watch Foundation stated that it had alone had confirmed 118 cases of child rape, sexual abuse, and trafficking on Pornhub. Half of the videos were category A level abuse, which is the worst kinds of abuse. What all of this means is that at this very moment, there could be hundreds if not thousands of videos of underage sex trafficking victims on Pornhub right now. And you and I very well could have watched one of those, if not hundreds of them. You feel uncomfortable yet? This is the reality of a so-called entertainment outlet that we joke about all throughout life. Whether you're a young kid entering puberty or an elderly person seeking to, seeking to keep things new and interesting for yourself. When you become aware of the reality of something, when it becomes real to you, something that truly marinates in you, knowledge that you can't avoid once you receive it, you change. You begin to reevaluate your intentions as you make your way to your phone or laptop. 
This evil habit has indeed caused us to make lighthearted situations out of what is a gruesome reality for many. Okay, Chris. So what if they they did come up with a way to make sure no children were, were used, no women were drugged or intoxicated in order to do their work, and it was all 100% consensual on all fronts? It would be okay then, right? I could still masturbate, masturbate, right? I mean, no one is being hurt, exploited, or manipulated at that point, right? A spoken word artist named Ezekiel... Uh, Azanwu performed a poem called Exodus and addresses this very same question. I wanted to share a portion of it on here, but I would encourage you to encourage you to definitely check it out. Um, check out the entire poem on on YouTube because it's incredible. Which is, he's just a wonderful, wonderful artist, wonderful, wonderful performer. Um, so regarding pornography and masturbation, he says. No one, no one could find a passage in scripture that directly speaks against it. But I don't recall parents carrying signs that say, don't, kid, don't kidnap my children. You simply know this because you understand the love of a parent. What more the love of a jealous God? See, I'm not lying. Masturbation is one of the few acts where you can break all ten commandments at one time. Check it. One. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. When your need to please you supersedes your need to please him, you have voted yourself idle without auditions or rounds. 2. Thou shalt not worship created images. But let's be honest, you get creative when you get into it. For instance, the figures you paint on top of your dome, you make Sistine Chapel of your thoughts, you bootleg Michelangelo forcing your body to praise the gallery of your imaginations until every sensation sings how great thou art. 3. Thou shalt not misuse the Lord's name. You call yourself Christian, but consistently practice this sin, so what more can I say? 4. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Well, that's broken because instead of taking time off of your work in sin to rest in Him, you keep clocking in and restlessly work to acknowledge you, seeking payday in the format of an, or of an orgasm. 5. Honor thy father and thy mother. You've dishonored them because you've perverted the design of the function that birthed you. Yet you court with the idea and engage with the act. So when you marry the sin, why do you want to divorce the consequences? 6. Thou shalt not murder. Every time you fall into this trap and constantly attempt to come back, you will, you, he will accept you. But in the process, you have trampled God's grace, spit in his face, and yes, crucified his son again and again. 7. Thou shalt, thou shalt not commit adultery. Your body is God's and not yours. So what do you think you do when you have sex with someone who does not belong to you? You. 8. Thou shalt not steal. Every time you try to satisfy yourself, you're robbing God of an opportunity to satisfy you the right way, completely. 9. Thou shalt not lie. But you are. You're lying to your body by your actions. 
telling it that you have power in your hand to make you happy and that somewhere along the line, God made a mistake. Now, is that just me or does that sort of sound similar to the statements of a snake? 10. Thou shalt not covet. But like I said before, you're desiring a body that is not yours. But having sex with yourself is beyond covetous or dishonorable. It's called same-sex relations, which according to the scriptures is abominable. Now, when Satan came to tempt Jesus, he beckoned him to make bread of stone to silence his hunger. But is eating bread sin? No. The travesty is indulging in something changed from God's original design at the counsel of a liar. That is perversion. Another spoken word artist named Joseph Solomon, who has a podcast called Flights and Feelings, talked about something super profound in one of his episodes that I think applies to what I'm trying to say here about pornography and the sacredness of the body. In an episode titled, I Do Not Own the Rights to This Black Body, he opens up the episode by describing how uh, looking out his window when he was younger and witnessing someone point a gun and, at another person and actually fire a couple shots. This was the first time he had seen someone shoot in the direction of another human being outside of movies and TV shows. He goes on to say that from that day on, he never wanted to see someone die if he could help it. Which then led him to talk about how when the George Floyd death began uh, being shared on social media, the guy whose neck was kneeled on by, the pol by a police officer for several minutes, he couldn't bring himself to watch it. And he actually got, he, he expressed some frustration with people who just shared the video of his death. Like if it was just something super trendy to do. I would highly recommend listening to that episode of his because he dives so much deeper um, about the issue of sharing things like that. Um, like someone's death on social media. What was super profound about this episode is that he explained how both the beginning and ending of someone's life are some of the most sacred moments in all of our lives, um, which call for a certain amount of privacy and and like a, a sense of dignity. He mentions how how that's the reason why only a couple of people are allowed in the delivery room when a woman is giving birth. And then if someone dies on the street, we cover their face with a with with a sheet just so that bystanders um, don't just stand there and gawk at the lifeless face or body. That's why if if someone receives the death penalty, their execution their execution is not broadcasted on television or shared on social media for everyone to see. I mean, um, the family, the victim's family, or uh, the 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 killers. Family can opt to watch the execution, but um, but even then, it's it's like a sanctioned uh, viewing. And then also, um, he didn't share this, but I just wanted to add this. Um, if you've ever is something, it's just something that I noticed. If you ever, if you ever had, if you've ever had an anatomy lab in college where you were able to di dissect a human cadaver, uh you know, a dead human body, they cover and wrap the cadaver's face and head. 
And even specifically in the class that I took, our cadaver's hands and feet were wrapped and covered because even exposing those body parts were too personal. It's, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, it's, it's kind of true. And it's kind of weird that we rarely recognize it. Um, but people's hands and feet carry, actually carry a lot of someone's personality. But even after their death, their bodies still have value and deserve to be treated with dignity. I mean, I remember when in college, when we had that cadaver, I, we gave it, we gave him a name. So, so I mention all that because I believe this applies to sex as well. It is an intimate bond meant to be shared with two people, two bodies, two souls, two personalities, not to be recorded and put on the internet for billions of people to watch every year. I mean, don't you think it'd be quite weird for a bride and groom to start getting it on at the reception in front of everyone after the uh, after their wedding? Like, instead of a first dance, it's, well, you get what I mean. It's sacred. It's sacred. If you're a Christian, even if you don't struggle with pornography or masturbation, more than likely you are plagued with an habitual sin of some sort. A sin or thought life that causes you to get really upset with yourself and say, why in the world do I still do this? Why in the world did I just say that? Why do I still lust after other people? Why do I still have these hateful, vengeful thoughts? Why can't I forgive my mother or father for what they did? Why am I still harboring unresolved childhood trauma? Why can't I love and serve my husband? Why can't I just go home to be with my wife and kids? Whatever it may be, just know you're not alone in feeling that way. In fact, in Paul's letter to the Romans, starting at chapter 7 verses 18 all the way to verse 2 of chapter 8, he writes, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want, what I, when I want to do was right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I, my, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. I mean, Paul, the same man who had an authorized mandate by the Jewish high court to hunt down and murder Christians, wrote these words. Imagine his thoughts. 
the immense regret he felt with having having been the reason for many deaths who who believed in the same savior he did now now that was paul but what about jesus paul came to believe paul came to believe after a life of religious self-righteousness and persecution of believers but what about what about the mountaintop crown jewel of the entire belief system did jesus himself experience this type of regret or of deep anguish because because of sin well yeah more than anyone could ever imagine but it it wasn't his own sin he felt deeply anguished by it was ours In Luke chapter 4, after being baptized by John the Baptist, but before entering into his public ministry, Jesus is tempted. And so Luke pens these words, starting at verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing uh, during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I, have, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you, if you worship me with, with all it'll all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil then led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus then answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this, all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Have you ever wondered what this opportune time was? Why does Luke record this? Because this wasn't the only nor the last temptation Jesus would face while on earth. Let me take you to the night before Jesus was crucified in, in Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he arose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into, into temptation. 
I had mentioned this in the last episode that Luke, the gospel writer, was a physician. And I find it quite incredible that his gospel account is the only one out of the four that mentions Jesus sweating blood. I mean, uh, many people claim that it was strictly just descriptive imagery um, that his sweat was falling in heavy droplets like how blood would. But severe stress and anguish can actually make the tiny blood vessels uh, surrounding sweat glands burst and make someone literally sweat blood in a rare phenomenon called um, hematohydrosis. It's an actual thing. Um, so maybe I'm reading too far into it, but I think it's interesting that the gospel writer who was a physician, um, the only one who would who'd be able to recognize this type of condition, would mention it in his gospel. So it's definitely possible because Jesus did indeed experience severe stress and anguish. In fact, in Matthew 26, verse 38, Jesus does say, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus was crushed with the heaviest affliction on the night before the weight of the entire human race's sin was thrashed on his body, thrust through his hands and feet, and crowned on his head. It absolutely was the opportune time foreshadowed in Luke 4. So, I would imagine at some point in this episode, you cringed that I shared so much of my personal difficulties and bad habits, or might have felt guilty for engaging in something that contributes to the blatant violation of of millions of women and children every year or maybe you didn't feel or think anything at all and just were amused that i shared such such a private portion of my life for um like probably over in half an hour or maybe maybe you're trying to figure out how to beat this thing Maybe you're among the millions of believers who were exposed to some sort of sexual sin before you even knew what the word intercourse meant and are trying to finally be broken free from those shackles and chains. So what's the remedy? What hope do we have in a world where sin is still ever so present and God seems a million miles away, but still calls us to live a life of honor and reverence towards him? The remedy the remedy is not obscure, nor is it hidden. The answer to the healing of your afflictions is not, it's, it's not being held above you by God like an older, older brother holding a toy above his head in one hand and, and blocking your face with the other, mocking you, saying, that's it. That's the best you got. You got to jump higher than that. There is indeed a solution. Our hope and trust in the victory over all sin lies in the very person the Father sent down to intercede for us, Jesus of Nazareth. But how? How? How can an ancient Near Eastern carpenter who lived two millennia ago in the opposite side of the world, how could he help me when I'm by myself in my room and I'm tempted to flip open that, that laptop? How, how does that make sense? I want to leave you with three simple words that summarize my encouragement for you. Read, 
pray, and sing. All three can and are done in a group setting with people that you love dearly, and I wholeheartedly encourage that. But I want to specifically address the alone time and individual study because that's where the temptation hits the most. Especially, especially for Christians. It's I, the reason why I think masturbation and pornography is so easy to fall into is because it's secret. You can do it behind closed doors. You can do it when no one's watching. It's, it's all available at your fingertips and your device. But, but something, something that Jackie Hill Perry said, um, in a movie that she was featured in a lot a couple years ago called the heart of man she mentions how bef before she was saved she kind of already knew that god existed um she knew that god existed so so he he saw he, she knew he's she knew that that he was seeing everything that she was doing and that's kind of how i i felt too but when she was saved Maybe that was the first time where she, where where she cared, where she cared about what he was seeing, and it, it was the same for me. So, so in regards to being by yourself or being alone, the reason why I want to encourage you in that, um, the reason why I wanted to specifically address that is because that is Satan's. Um, that is the devil's opportune time for us. So number one, read. How does reading scripture help me when I feel almost paralyzed during my temptation? Well, let's look back at Jesus' wilderness temptation in Luke chapter 4. The only words that are recorded as Jesus' response to Satan are direct quotations from Old Testament scripture written thousands of years before. Jesus takes three scriptures out of the book of Deuteronomy and he hits the devil with the word of God. I find it quite beautiful that Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy because it's essentially the giving of the law. Um, the law that was given to Moses after the Exodus and the party in the Red Sea and the plagues and all that, all that whole episode um, a second time. It's the law given a second time. The reason it was getting, given a second time was because at this point in history um, that the book of Deuteronomy uh, is set in, pretty much everyone who witnessed the Exodus firsthand had already passed away and died. Deuteronomy, therefore, serves as a giant reminder to the people of Israel to remember, to remember what God brought them out of, which was the land, which was Egypt, was which was to them the land of bondage and slavery read read so that you're reminded of god's gracious and powerful hand that rescued you out of your bondage and enslavement the more you read the more you know the more you know the more you understand the more you understand the more you change but it has to become real to you which is why I mentioned everything that I did in the beginning, in, in spite of how tough it was to hear. Like, for example, if, if I never knew my dad, 
if I, if I never came to know my father and all of a sudden he started coming into my life and my friends ask, Hey, is that your dad? And I'm like, yeah. And they ask, do you love him? I can't really say that I do because I don't know him. Especially if, if he starts, um, bossing me around, commanding me to do things. I'm going to be like, no, I don't even know who you are. Let alone to be comfortable telling you that I love you. The more you know a person, if if that same father figure had has raised you and has seen you and has cultivated you and has invested in you your whole life, you will without a doubt 100% say, yeah, that's my dad. And I love him. That's how, that's what our relationship with God should be like. You should know him so well through his revealing of his character, through his, his word, the scriptures. You should know him so well that you without a doubt say, yeah, that's my God. That's my God. So number two, pray. When Jesus was entering the Garden of Gethsemane for his opportune time temptation, he told the disciples who were with him twice to pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Jesus made intimate prayer with the holy, righteous God possible. He made it possible. God hears your cries because of him. He hears your plea and promises to preserve you, to build you up and to make a way for you to have a relationship with him. If, if you repent of your sins and believe in the resurrected son, he made a way. And lastly, three, you sing, you rejoice in the work that has been done. You, you sing and worship with the global body of believers because it is indeed finished. You can rest assured that no amount of good deeds on your part could get you right with the holy, righteous God because we are a sinful, fallen people. But Jesus, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice needed to restore an unrighteous, sinful people back to himself through to God. To ultimately restore the direct fellowship that we that was available to man in the Garden of Eden before the Great Deception. Celebrate. Celebrate even in the midst of absolute chaos, famine, temptation, and imperfection because it has been done. And also because it is all only temporary. temporary. Reading, praying, and singing brings you to deeper knowledge of a God who provides everything necessary for a glorious reunion. This, this fantastic banquet of redeemed sinners in the end, where he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. This is what awaits those who, who fight, who fight that good fight against temptation, who rest assured in the, in the work that has been completed in the person of Jesus Christ. He did it for us. And so when we obey, when we obey, it is, 
it is in love. It is not because we are, we are being forced to do so. It is because we want to. It is because we want to. A 24-year-old like me doesn't deserve to be free, for there are many others more obedient and worthy. The love they show with their perseverance surpasses my petty acts of kindness. But he continues to show me what love truly is and drowns me in mercy. Mercy that I believe broke my chains and set me free. Mercy that can only be divinely ordained and that I myself could never reach. I don't deserve this, but my heart continues to beat. I still have a life, like a man revived by the maneuvering of a single surgical knife, like a blind man witnessing light for the first time, like Muhammad Ali casting out his fist and getting into his first fight. I still have life. I really don't deserve this. I don't deserve the same spirit that fed the poor and healed the sick, who forgave a tax collector and dwelled in the one who knew no sin. The same spirit that cured the paralytic and drove out evil evil spirits. The same spirit who resisted the devil and was the only one who was able to do it. As for me, I was conceived by sin. I thought I deserved blessings from God when I really deserved a spiritual firing squad to pierce my feet and spear my palms. I don't deserve life-changing movement, for I ran from spiritual discernment. I loved my sin. I don't deserve this. Better yet, I don't deserve to be his. But I am. And it is by his gift that I can now lift up my hands once imprisoned and can now say I live. I live for him. That's my God, and he will be glorified. If you made it this far, I just want to, I just want to sincerely, sincerely thank you for taking the time to hear my heart. I knew by doing this, I was putting myself way out there. But I honestly would do, do it all seven days a week if I knew it would encourage at least one person with their battle. Just one person. So next episode, I'm gonna address how music and its culture has damaged us, has damaged us and influenced our behaviors and intentions with each other. It's actually, it's actually more a, a big, big issue. Um, so thanks for tuning in um one last thing if 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 you think this is all just silly pie in the sky belief in in in, in an imaginary grandfather talk um i would i would uh i would ask you to to ask yourself one question you want to know if something controls you try giving it up try giving it up so don't knock it don't knock it till you know don't knock it till you try it and for my brothers and sisters in christ read your bible because it's kind of incredible peace <laughs>